1: Joseph James D'Angelo is facing 13 homicide charges and 13 charges of kidnap with intent to rob in connection with the Golden State Killer crime spree. While law enforcement believes him to be responsible for the many rapes attributed to the East Area Rapist spree, due to the statute of limitations, they cannot file rape charges. At the time of this recording, Joseph D'Angelo has not yet entered a plea and is awaiting trial.
2: This case is why we lock our doors at night attacked all over California. The community was taken hostage. Brutal homicides. One of the most prolific serial killers in the history of this state, if not in this nation. Today we're going to launch a national campaign to help identify the Golden State Killer. The last known crime of the Golden State Killer was the brutal murder of Janelle Cruz in May of 1986. Since then, it seems that he went dormant. Many speculated that he may have died or was incarcerated, but on April 24th, 2018, law enforcement arrested the man they believe to be the Golden State Killer after his DNA 100% matched the semen samples left at the crime scenes. That man's name is Joseph James D'Angelo. And from the late 80s to his arrest, Joe D'Angelo lived a seemingly quiet life in the quiet neighborhood of Citrus Heights, just east of Sacramento. One of his neighbors is our guest right now. Please welcome Grant Gorman. Hi. Hi.
1: All right, Grant. So let's start at the beginning. You grew up in the house behind the D'Angelo's And what would you say is like your earliest memories? Somewhere in the 80s?
3: Yeah, definitely. Late 80s, playing with his children.
1: And what was the neighborhood like at that time?
3: It was a brand new development. I mean, all the houses were built in the early 80s. And it was original owners in most of the houses, a lot of kids, uh, new schools. It was an up and coming development.
1: And you knew the D'Angelo kids um, because you were similar in age?
3: Yeah, he had one daughter who was very close to my age, so I was friends with her, and uh, that's how I got to know the family.
2: It, it was the kind of neighborhood where kids would like, hang out and play and do things? Were you guys all sort of like, tight like that?
3: Oh, yeah, definitely. Actually, Joe D'Angelo lived at the top of a tall hill that was right in front of his driveway, and it was a lot of fun to take your bikes down or take your... Uh, three wheeler down. So the front of his house could be a meetup point for a lot of the kids most days where it would be playing in front of his house.
2: Wow. <laughs> How about that? Yeah. The meetup place for the kids in front of Joe's house.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Why not?
1: Well, you told us some great stories for the show. Uh, and unfortunately, we didn't have time for all of them. But I would like for you to tell the story about um, you would camp in the backyard some nights. Talk about that.
3: Yeah. Growing up, we had a tramp, one of those large trampolines in our backyard that me and my brother's sister would take our sleeping bags out and warm summer nights, and we'd sleep in the backyard on the trampoline. And uh, we'd tell stories, invite maybe cousins over and have little parties back there. And uh, that was some of the first times that we got to hear Joe having his arguments with himself or his rants in, in his backyard. Those were the earliest memories I have of Joe acting very strangely.
1: Can you describe what that sounded like or what that was like, what time it was?
3: Yeah, we'd go into the backyard early in the night, seven or eight around the time the sun went down. And it'd be after midnight, usually late in the night, Joe would start making his rants. And we'd be there quietly whispering to ourselves. And all of a sudden, you'd hear these expletives, these arguments going on over the fence You'd hear him for two or three minutes hatching out whatever he needed to hatch out and in his head. And uh, it scared us when we were little, but we didn't understand what was really going on. I mean, we were too young to, to probably take it seriously. And he'd, he'd finish up whatever he was yelling about and go back into his house. About a half hour later, an hour later, he might be out doing it again. And it would, it would go on throughout the night.
1: How old were you at this time?
3: Probably started when we were eight or nine years old. Yeah, that's got <laughs> yeah, to be weird. Yeah,
2: to be eight or nine and living next door to that, you must. It makes sense. You didn't know what was going on. Why was he acting this way?
3: No, not at all. And it was. It might have scared us the first couple times it happened, but it wasn't out of the norm to hear him do it. So very quickly, it became kind of commonplace, and we we joke about it. My sister and I. Would say that he had uh, aliens living in his attic. Would say that he was Crazy Joe, arguing with himself, not taking it seriously, just thinking that he was... It was so normal to us, we were too close to the forest to see the trees.
2: Wow, would you say it was something that happened monthly or even weekly?
3: Oh, weekly, definitely. I mean... It was very common. Wow. Yeah.
2: You also mentioned this
1: story where you saw Joe D'Angelo in a rage and it showed you what true anger looked like. And and tell us how that affected you and and what, what happened there.
3: I mean, there's those moments in your life that kind of stick with you and you're not sure why. We all have those very few memories from our young, young childhood. But I remember specifically one time Joe caught me looking into his backyard and I don't know what he had been doing right before it but he came around the corner of his house really quickly and made direct eye contact with me and in that moment like the look he gave me I was terrified I, I could still vividly see like his his square kind of brown fattish face like shaking just bright red and his his like dirty blonde hair just like going back and forth kind of crazily but not breaking eye contact with me and uh it really scared me i still remember it
1: what did you do did you just run away
3: ran away i mean this guy lives next door to me and i wasn't a troublemaker kid i was just curious he was probably yelling right before it i was trying to see what he was mad at this time and you don't expect to get a death look from your neighbor
1: yeah no kidding. So obviously as a kid you guys would talk about him maybe call him crazy Joe but do you recall or uh, or did your parents talk about like how did the rest of the neighborhood kind of view him? Did they have the same reaction as the kids did or or did he act differently with adults?
3: Well, we didn't talk to a lot of the neighbors that he had because living right behind him, we dealt with them because we shared that property line. You know, the neighbors that are on his street would be the more day-to-day neighbors that would probably have conversations about him my parents stopped interactions with them when we were young just because they got some weird feelings when they invited joe and his wife over to a birthday party of mine and my brother's when we were seven or eight years old and they wanted to be neighborly with the family joe gave off some sort of vibe where my parents just made a decision that they wouldn't be inviting them over anymore
2: Wow. Did he come to the birthday party?
3: Yeah, him and his wife brought their children over to the party.
1: And do you have any more details on, on what was weird about it?
3: I don't think they did anything that was too over the top. I know my parents told me that him and uh, his wife were arguing at the party and uh, Joe wasn't very sociable, but there's no one straw that broke the camel's back right then. It was just an overall feeling of uneasiness that made, uh, made my parents not want to associate with the family anymore. And that was just the beginning of our families kind of not getting along. We weren't feuding families by any means. But over the years, enough incidents happened to where we knew not to go over to their house anymore. We knew not to associate with their family anymore. My parents didn't think it was safe.
1: So, yeah, it wasn't like there were huge red flags more so like, oh, these are just really awkward conversations. And clearly there's stuff going on in the household. And let's just keep to our own business.
3: Exactly. No huge red flags. It's it's looking back, you know, with hindsight being 2020 that you see all those little those little red flags and you wonder, how did I miss so many seemingly obvious clues now that something was really wrong over there?
2: Well, you don't just assume that you're living next door to someone who's going to end up being an alleged serial killer. So that's completely understandable. Not at
3: all. I got that question a lot. It's like, did you ever assume did you ever think it was him? I'm like, what are you talking about? Do you think any of your neighbors are serial killers or high profile criminals? I mean, of course not. It's so out of the norm
2: right and and actually, shortly after that incident is is that when Sharon moved out?
3: She moved out in the early nineties. It would have been very yeah, it would have been very close to that probably in the next year or two.
2: when she moved out,
1: he stayed yes and You know, they're still technically married today, even though they separated at the time. But the kids would still come over. Right. I mean, a lot of times people think, oh, parents divorce and the kids go with the mom. Did you feel like he still was an active father participating and the kids would come over? Or or what was your impression at the time?
3: I would see the kids there. I mean, yeah, he was still uh, parenting to whatever degree. I couldn't tell you, but he wasn't an absent father. Even after the the mom moved out and the family kind of got split up, I would still see the kids there throughout grade school and high school years until we all moved away.
1: And as a kid, obviously, you have your own experience of your father and then you see him with, you know, your friends as their father. Did you guys think of him as a father to your friends or was he just crazy Joe?
3: When I was growing up, me and my siblings, I mean, the wool was we were so young and so naive. That I remember hearing Joe yell at his family, yell at his kids, and I thought to myself that it must have been something his kids did wrong. Maybe he got into an argument with his wife, maybe it was something that his wife did. I remember thinking that even though he was such a weird character, I gave him credit for being a father back then. I didn't really see him as being a monster or being this radical it was something that i grew up next door to like i said my entire life it, it was normal to me so when i heard him yelling at his kids i remember thinking like man his daughters are so well behaved when when i see him but they must go home and be hellraisers at night because he's <laughs> always yelling at them
2: you know and that seems to be a running theme right you mentioned earlier you know he he had many angry outbursts he seems like he was pretty loud and using am i right in saying he was using pretty foul language
3: yeah yeah you 're right
2: and would you i mean was he witty <laughs> like did he have a go to word or did he you know uh, did he like pick on a certain i don 't know person or group of people when he was ranting
3: If I could go back in time and really pay attention to what these rants specifically said that that 's my one my one wish in the, in this whole situation, you know because I feel like there was a a lot of things said that we just didn 't give any credibility to, and it went in one ear and right out the other. He wasn't a witty guy. It was kind of, he was a diesel, you know, he's a diesel mechanic. And it was kind of the cursing that you would expect to hear in some sort of mechanic shop, blue collar sort of uh, rants. And he wasn't a genius. I mean, he was a, he was a tinkerer and he had systems set up. He, He was a very regimented man, but I don't think he was some sort of criminal mastermind or anything. He was... He never gave me that vibe.
1: Did he stay up most nights? Because you said you were out, you know, camping at night and he would come out, you know, and you said he's pretty regimented. Did he seem like a guy who, you know, was a, was a night owl or early morning guy?
3: Yeah, he was up at night a lot. He kept those hours. So I wouldn't see him in the morning a lot. But uh, at nighttime, especially back in the, the 90s and early 2000s, that seemed to where he would get a lot of his stuff done.
1: Right. You also uh, told a scary story of how Joe D'Angelo intimidated your mom. Your mom, by the way, who had been aware of the East Area Rapist in the 70s and had put extra locks on her gates at the time. Yeah. Now, years later, those locks had been ignored. And then one early morning, Joe scared her. What What happened?
3: Yeah. My mom was doing yard work in our backyard here in Citrus Heights. And Joe was mad about something and took upon himself to get into his car, and drive the full quarter-mile, half-mile it is, to uh, our driveway. Because even though we share that property line, to get to his front door to our front door takes, takes a little bit. But he drove himself all the way to our house, let himself into our side gate, walked around our whole property and met my mom who was by herself at our house in the backyard and just started screaming at her and they're not neighborly. I mean, this was probably 10 years, 12 years after the family stopped talking and it terrified my mom. And he was, he just started laying into her about, I think he was mad that it was too early to be doing yard work. And, uh, <laughs> he's, he's cussing at her, just, uh, got her to cry there in the backyard and it, my mom thought about calling the police that day because she knew what happened wasn't normal. Because She's been living in, in that property for over 30 years, and no one has ever let themselves into the backyard, into the house. And he did it with no regard. He he let himself in and was so comfortable back there yelling and intimidating my mom that um, it really terrified her.
2: And knowing what you know now, looking back then, I imagine it's even more terrifying.
3: My, yeah, my mom was... By herself, getting yelled at by the Golden State Killer. I mean, anything could have happened. And that's how close she was to be being a part of this story. It's really scary.
1: It is. And I think part of what's also fascinating about that story is, is what you said, just with No regard for anybody's personal property or personal space. He just walked right into that backyard. And it's a story that, you know, even some of your other neighbors have told how he would kind of show up in your backyard or show up on your property where most of us might, you know, ring the doorbell. And if no one opened, you know, leave. He didn't seem to have that that respect for other people's property.
3: Yeah, you're right. It wasn't till after he got arrested that some of us neighbors started talking about you know things that we might have missed stories from over the years and it wasn't uncommon for him to do just that let himself onto other neighbors properties when he was in a fit of rage and felt that he was entitled to do so because of his anger
2: but that's not the only scary moment grant's family had with neighbor and suspected golden state killer joseph james d'angelo d'angelo also left the family a very threatening voicemail And Grant shares that story next.
0: Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well.
1: We're speaking with Grant Gorman, one of Joseph D'Angelo's longtime neighbors. Grant, you also told us on the Unmasking a Killer documentary series about a threatening voicemail that Joe D'Angelo left on your family's answering machine. Can you tell us what was happening where D'Angelo felt the need to call and leave that message?
3: Yeah, it was. uh, We had a dog at the time who was barking. And in in the 30 years we lived in that house, Joe hates the neighborhood dogs. And between him complaining about them Uh, face to face or he would even go the legal route and complain to the city and try to get the dogs taken away from different families on the block i mean he really went out of his way to to make life hard for dog owners for some reason but uh, our family got back from a weekend trip and he had left a an anonymous voicemail on our answering machine saying that if we didn't shut our dog up he would bring a load of death to the family and no name no number anything after that that's that was the entirety of the message and my dad immediately recognized who it was and he walked right in the backyard and just started yelling at Joe's house he took a step up onto the fence that we share and just started demanding satisfaction demanding for him to come out and uh have a conversation about what happened joe came out and uh didn't walk up to the fence his his back sliding glass doors probably 50 feet away from the property line and that's where he stayed and they had a yelling match back and forth for a little bit joe admitted that he was the one who left the answering machine message and uh we needed to do something about our dog but my dad was already past that part of the argument at the time he felt that his family had been threatened he felt that a line had been crossed and uh he knew that this situation was dangerous. So at the end of that argument, both sides left. No fists were thrown. But the, the very next week, my dad built a brand new fence between our two houses that was a half foot taller than the fence there before. And uh, my dad even saved that tape with uh, the death threat on it for years just in case something, something happened. And he knew it, it could have been a, a piece.
2: Wow. Now, it was a short time after that, right, that your, your dog got sick. What do you think happened?
3: The dog that we had was three or four years old and in the prime of its life. And out of nowhere, yeah, it was that same year that Joe left those death threats. The dog ha- started having these episodes of, of just uncontrollable, lethargic, couldn't get up, couldn't eat food, and uh, was getting sick. The dog would get better, and then it would happen maybe two or three, it happened two or three times, and we ended up having to put the dog down. The vet gave us a diagnosis of possible chemical imbalance, possible hormone imbalance, but uh, looking back on it and talking to some of the neighbors, we're fairly certain that Joe had been poisoning some of the neighborhood dogs and that we might have been a victim to that and not known it.
1: Well, knowing Jodi Angelo was arrested trying to steal dog mace in 1979... I mean, I don't know what dog mace can do to a dog or a repeated use of it, but it can't be good.
2: It can't be comfortable. And, you know, it's, it's also really interesting, the whole him not really liking dogs, because before there was an alleged Golden State killer, before he was arrested, everyone was speculating that he had some sort of power over dogs because the dogs wouldn't bark. So it's almost like you would expect him to be this master of dogs in the neighborhood. All the dogs love him. But actually, it sounds like he completely hated dogs
3: yeah he he was the opposite he did not like dogs at all, and he he loved his children, but from the experience that we had growing up next to him, he also didn't like other people's children and that I think the power dynamic is what he really enjoyed of having things that he knew he could he could control with just blind anger like he could he could get mad at kids and they'd obey him he'd get mad at dogs they'd obey him
1: right. Yeah, um, There was also some, some rumors of some other, you know, he didn't like the cats in his backyard or it, it wasn't just dogs, right?
3: It wasn't just dogs. He hated, especially hated the neighborhood cats because the, uh, he has like 10 or 15 feet of undeveloped property on his side of the fence that we share that in the 30 years he's lived there, he's never done any anything with. It's just kind of dirt and sparse weeds because he never wanted to put the money in to fix it. But it became the perfect spot for the neighborhood cats to use the bathroom. So I would, yeah, I would hear him all the time complaining about this goddamn cats. And not more than a couple times, that would be the cause of some of his rants in the backyard. I mean, little things would set him off in those rants. And it was rage coming out.
2: As the years went on, you know, you're growing up. How would you describe... D'Angelo as a neighbor. I mean, he, he seemed to pride himself on a clean yard, but you told us he was known to be cheap. Give us some more details.
3: He, he was a real common character in the neighborhood. So he was the kind of guy who was in his driveway all the time, and you'd see him and wave, and he'd always wave back, but that was the most interaction you wanted to have with him. If it got anything deeper, where you had to have an actual conversation with him or had to talk to him about money, splitting costs, and something, then he he really became argumentative and, and not a fun person to be around. But as far as the the really scary stuff that he did, we've lived next to him for a long time, and he's mellow he's an old man now, and he still has anger in him, but it's not like it was back in '88 in or 98. He had a different fire in his belly back then, and he caused more problems for the neighborhood back then than he has in the last 15 years.
2: So he was mellowing a bit.
3: Yeah, he mellowed with age. I mean, it had to have been hard to keep up that anger. Like, he really ran in the red a lot.
1: It's interesting, though, how, you know, you would think, I mean, if the accusations are correct, and this is what he did, that, you know, you'd go hiding more. But as you said, he's kind of hiding in plain sight if he's standing on his driveway waving to everybody. And, you know, kind of everybody knew him and saw him and knew to kind of you know not get too close to him but it wasn't like he's the guy that no one ever sees
3: no not at all you would see him all the time he was so proud of his front yard and his house and he you got to put a face to the property and so you knew he lived in there he kept that house the same color as the original paint job he never remodeled the front of the house that house looks just like it did when it was built back in the late 70s or early 80s. I mean, that house was a big part of his, who he identified himself as.
2: Did you ever go inside the house? No. I can't imagine why.
3: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my goodness. Actually, uh, his house, though, is the same floor plan as my house. So uh, it's kind of weird walking by his house because it's the exact same house. And like I said, it's the original color that he kept it on the front even though he painted the back half of his house a different color. But if I I walk by his house and it's a blast from the past where I see my house from 30 years ago, what it looked like then.
1: And so there's rumors that he's, you know, out in his yard with scissors cutting his grass. Was he that meticulous about the front yard?
3: Yeah, well, the deal with the scissors was he has these three large boulders in his front yard that uh, he has to edge around. And I think he was just too cheap to buy an edger. So to get close to those... (laughs) he would have to get down on his hands and knees and and use scissors around him. He's a strong guy and he's he's very capable he, up till the day he arrested him. Those rocks he he'd push over on their side and kind of get the grass underneath it and push him back. So this the scissor story isn't like he was out there like a crazy person trying to cut every blade of grass with a pair of scissors. The scissor story just shows the care that he put into his yard for some reason. He got lost in his house and doing his maintenance work. That was his hobby.
1: There's also on the if you're facing the house on the right hand side, there's this huge kind of structure, like a, a shade structure that you know you see in the media coverage and the and the photos and the stuff. What is that? And how did that get to be there?
3: I've talked about that with a couple of the other neighbors. None of us know 100 percent what he was thinking when he put it up. The best we can come up with is it's a shade structure to keep that half of the house cooler it was a harebrained idea that none of us had ever seen it before and none of us are really sure to this day what he was thinking when he put it up
1: it's also a bit of an eyesore like i'm surprised the neighbor next door didn't have an issue with it well if
2: they did would they say anything
3: (laughs) oddly enough the neighbors next door to him didn't have any run-ins with joe in the 30 years that they had lived they still it's original homeowners next door and uh I've talked to them a couple of times. They didn't have a lot of problems with Joe. And I think the reason for that is actually the old lady who lives there, her husband, who isn't around anymore, used to be good friends with Joe. Hmm. And uh, Joe hasn't had that many good friends, from what I understand, in the 30 years he's lived on the street. It might have just been one or two people who, could, who he uh, associated with on a friendly basis. But he was one of them.
1: Interesting. And you also said that he, he was trying to keep the house cool potentially with this shade structure and and that's why the back of the house was painted a different color
3: don't know yeah i that's the best i could come up with yeah the front of the house is painted that original brown and the back of the house is painted white right down the middle 50 50 one color one color the best i could come up with he was doing it to save ac costs Keep the house cooler.
1: Yeah, because the sun hits the back of his house and then the side that has a shade structure for most of the day. So that would make sense,
2: right? And why spend the extra money on the paint for the front then? <laughs> Apparently,
3: yeah,
1: or he really right. wanted the front to still look as nice original. As when, yeah,
3: that's what I think. I think he really wanted that house to look original, and that is that is not common on the street. And none of the houses have the original colors. They've all been remodeled. They're all. These houses were built 30 years ago. They're all updated now. But Joe really liked living in that early 80s looking house.
2: What was your last sighting or interaction with him?
3: I I couldn't remember specifically. It was probably just one of these driving by his house and seeing him in his garage. Or I might have been doing yard work and seeing him in his backyard. I mean, seeing him was so common that I couldn't really remember the last time that I specifically saw him.
2: Right. And when you would see him, would you, was it the kind of thing where you would wave? I know you said a lot of people would wave to him or you just didn't, you just didn't interact.
3: I would definitely wave. I mean, if in this neighborhood, this is a nice suburban neighborhood and it's polite to wave to your neighbors. So you would always wave.
1: And he's usually out there just in t-shirt and jeans doing his thing. You said he's still pretty strong, right?
3: Yeah. He was like a cartoon character where he wore the same kind of outfits all the time jeans and like white undershirt and he was very capable you'd see him on the block bicycling around still like i said he was doing all of his own yard work he was he had jet skis in his driveway i mean i don't think he owned the jet skis but whatever friend let him borrow those or however he got them he was he was out doing other things and a, not a decrepit old man
2: And on the morning of April 25th, 2018, Grant's very active, very fit neighbor, Joseph D'Angelo, was arrested and charged with being the Golden State Killer. Grant recalls what that morning was like for him, his family, and the quiet Citrus Heights neighborhood where he grew up.
0: Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance, an emergency repair, or a dream project,
1: on the morning of April 25th, 2018, what were you doing and how did you find out that this neighbor of yours, Joseph James D'Angelo, was being arrested in the case of the Golden State Killer?
3: That morning, I remember getting on the Internet and finding out that the Golden State Killer had been arrested and it was in Citrus Heights. And immediately, like, I, I was like, that's interesting. I I lived in Citrus Heights most of my life. My mom's there. I got to figure out where this guy lived. And details are real hard to come by that morning for the first hour or so and then my phone started ringing and it was my mom and uh, she told me that there was FBI and helicopters flying over our house and I needed to get over there and I immediately put two and two together and and assumed that one of our neighbors had been found out to be the Golden State Killer so without haste I was over at my mom's house and uh, walked right into my backyard across it Stepped onto the fence that we share and uh, peeked over and there was six FBI agents in the backyard. Caution tape everywhere. They were taking pictures of evidence in the backyard. It was madness.
2: That's crazy. Uh-huh. What a thing to wake up to. <laughs> Just insanity. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like seeing your, your world turned upside down in a way. I mean, your quiet little suburban nice neighborhood where everybody waves to everybody is home to one of the most alleged, one of the most uh, notorious serial killers of all time.
3: Yeah. And our backyard has we have three other neighbors that we share property lines with in our backyard. But growing up, his house was the most interesting one, obviously, because of these stories. And that was the house that we would pay attention to, the house that we would sneak peeks at or spy on a little bit and see what was going on over there. And in that moment, things started falling into place. It was like the reason I was drawn to watching this house for the last 30 years when I was growing up wasn't, wasn't random choices. It was, well, all those, yelling, all those yelling matches, like all these heated arguments, all these fights he had with himself, really were red flags that i was picking up on and paying attention to and then to have it all kind of dawn on you in that moment what happened it's it changed my perspective on the home i grew up in on my childhood i mean all these memories i have now of birthday parties easters christmases they're all still great memories, but also now I know 150 feet away from me was the Golden State Killer and all, all of those childhood memories.
1: What was that day like for your mom?
3: My mom left town immediately. She took three or four days and didn't want to be around. When she got back, she uh, did an interview with the DA and she doesn't like talking about Joe a lot just because he really did scare her a couple times. And she was terrified of the Golden State Killer growing up. She always prided herself on being a safe person. And to know that you bought a house next to him, you invited him over, he let himself into the backyard and threatened you. It was a lot to process. Just surreal.
1: Dude, that's a lot to mm-hmm. process for me right now, and it didn't
2: even happen to me. So I know.
3: It's hard to think about. I mean, yeah. It's your whole life has this character in it that you never, you know, suspected to be someone dangerous.
1: What do you think now, like looking back, the fact that Joe retreated after that confrontation from the voicemail, like, have you talked to your father about this?
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And what has he said?
3: What my dad remembers most about the argument is he felt the line was crossed and he w- he was out for blood. He wanted to fight Joe. He felt that his kids had been threatened. His wife, or the very minimum, his his dog had been threatened. And my dad loves his dog. So he was ready to go, my dad was, and he assumed that Joe would be too, and when he started yelling at him that day and realized Joe didn't want to fight, it just made my dad more angry that this guy would leave an anonymous death threat on his answering machine and not have the balls to come up and actually, you know, do something about it. And that story has always been... It's just a footnote of my life, but hindsight being 2020, 20, now I know, after that argument happened, and my dad felt that he won and walked back into his house i 'm fairly certain that Joe walked into his house and just argued with himself for however long about if he could kill our family and get away with it or not, or at the very least kill my dad because i 'm sure he was pissed off that day when when he got told off and he probably went right into his house and was thinking, "Man, can I get away with this? Oh, I hate that guy so much. He embarrassed me in front of the neighborhood because it's a quiet neighborhood, and they were yelling at the top of their lungs at each other. So it was a spectacle. And my dad felt that he'd probably handled the situation well and not know how how wrong it could have it could have really gone.
1: Yeah, it can't be easy for him now to realize that you know he confronted." who law enforcement believes to be the Golden State Killer and actually live to tell about it.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's probably a a feather in your hat now, but at the time, is it really worth doing it? I mean, yeah, 20 years later, you can kind of tell the story about how you told off a serial killer. But if somebody told you that, hey, that guy over there is a serial killer, do you want to go pick a fight with them? No, no, thank you. (laughs) Obviously not.
1: Right. And obviously, as we said earlier, you don't know what you think you know about your neighbor. So it's one of those, you know, it's always so scary to think about even having that conversation or that confrontation with your neighbor.
3: Yeah, exactly. I mean, when I was little, I'd cut through Joe's property. I'd hop my fence, run through his backyard, hop his fence, then I'd be out on the street in front of his house. And it would save me a a five-minute walk, 10-minute walk if I was going through my back streets. And... At the time, I was just jumping through my grumpy neighbor's backyard, not knowing that I was jumping through the Golden State Killer's backyard and what he might have done if he found some stranger in his backyard.
2: Yeah, it's just so unbelievable. And, you know, you know I want to ask you, in light of all this, have your perceptions of the world changed in any way?
3: My perceptions of the world, I do find myself maybe more untrusting of people that uh, I don't know very well, but, I mean, on a day-to-day my life hasn't changed. How I, how I treat people hasn't changed. This was such a freak occurrence that you can't go through life expecting to have this happen to you ever again. Most people will never have anything like this happen to them at all. So I think I could chalk it up to uh, life being crazy, and luckily, we all came out of it okay.
1: Have you um, thought about his daughters at all in light of this?
3: Yeah, I have. That'll be a really interesting story to hear of what actually happened with them. Because they, we didn't talk to them a lot after the grade school, high school years at all. Our families definitely weren't friendly. So I was surprised to hear that some of the daughters became uh, successful in their own right. With how hard a life they had growing up and how much Joe yelled at them, it was a tough environment for them to blossom in. But uh, I'm glad that they did well.
1: You've seen, I'm assuming, Joe's mugshot and you know his early court appearance. Have you seen... The latest one, the December one, and how much weight he's lost?
3: No, I haven't.
1: It's fascinating to look at him because I, you know, he's now seventy-three years old, and at the time that he was arrested, he was seventy-two. And you're like, well, he looks really good for a seventy-two-year-old, right? You know, he was still fit and strong, and now he uh, he definitely looks a lot older now that he's lost all that weight.
3: Yeah, I mean, this is speculation, but I'm not surprised he's losing weight. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if he's trying to slowly kill himself just through normal life processes.
2: I was wondering that. Is is—is he the you know, I mean, some people say certain people would never commit suicide because they're not, they're too cowardly. However you feel about it, it's a difficult topic. But what, what is your take on that? You feel like he could go through with that?
3: Yeah, I, Joe, I, uh, I think Joe lived with those secrets for so long and he was so embarrassed when everything came crap. He was so certain that he would never get caught. And he had everybody fooled for so long to have this all come crashing down on him like you said, now that he's 72 and he has nothing left. I mean, he has nothing left. The the house that he grew up in, the neighborhood is all obviously doesn't want anything to do with him. I don't know how much family is uh, trying to communicate with him now. And I wouldn't be surprised if he willingly just uh, kind of faded out.
1: Yeah. And then it's also, you know, he's not obviously getting to work as that he used to. And he's not kind of getting... The food that he was able to eat before and, you know, I'm sure they put him on a diet, you know. (laughs) You have calorie restrictions and, you know, when you're older, you got to worry about heart disease and all this other stuff. And the doctors in the jails are like, well, you know, we control what you eat, so here's a low-sodium, 2,000-calorie-a-day diet. I don't know. You know, they that alone will also have an impact. Or
2: the food is just awful.
3: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I'm sure prison's not, you know, a Michelin-rated restaurant or anything, but... uh, I I think it'd be the shame, just so much shame from years of you thinking that you were smarter than everybody and rubbing it in people's faces and so secure that you were never going to get caught. That when it finally happened, it was his entire life was just hiding those monstrosities. And now that they're all out in the open, it's like a UV light getting shown on bacteria Where it just, it'll take away its life force.
1: Would you, if you got a chance to talk to him, do you have questions for him? Do you you have anything to say to him?
3: Yeah. The one thing I'd like to know is if he really did poison our dog. Our family loved that dog. Her name was Brandy. And uh, if I could ask him anything and get a truthful answer, it would be whether or not he killed our dog.
1: Well, I don't know if he'll ever talk. Um, And like you said, I think think the question is then even if he does, what's the truth, right? So
2: yeah. Awesome. Well, listen, first of all, thank you uh, so much for coming on today and speaking with us, sharing your insights into Joseph D'Angelo. I mean, it must be so surreal to find out a lifelong neighbor stands accused of being California's most prolific serial killer. So thank you for coming on and and talking to us about
3: your experience. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks, Grant. Yeah, no problem. Glad I could help.
2: Coming up next week, the theory of the Visalia Ransacker. Before
1: the identification and arrest of suspected Golden State killer Joseph D'Angelo, law enforcement was divided over whether the Visalia ransacking crime spree was connected to the Golden State killer. Some believe it was, and some believe it wasn't.
2: Retired Contra Costa County Chief Investigator Paul Holes originally believed it was not, but publicly changed his mind about it and joins us again to explain what convinced him.
1: We'll also welcome back Unmasking a Killer supervising producer Todd Lindsay to discuss the Visalia Ransacker crime spree and some of the evidence and MO characteristics that pointed to the Golden State Killer.
2: And for more on the Golden State Killer case, you can watch the complete Unmasking a Killer documentary series On Demand with CNN Go.
1: And the entire companion podcast series, including these new episodes, is also available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Joke Finciun.
2: And I'm Biagio Messina. Thanks for listening.
0: Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot